0: Welcome back to Heart to Heart. Today, we are thrilled to have Oscar nominee Kathleen Turner join us as our guest. This renowned actress has captivated audiences with her distinctive voice and strong on-screen presence. We delve into the stories behind Kathleen's most iconic roles while also exploring the delicate balance she maintains between her career and personal health. Plus, Kathleen shares her invaluable experiences and profound wisdom as one of the most acclaimed performers of our time. So trust me, you do not want to miss this one. Before you listen, you've got to grab our Backstage Pass. It is packed with Kathleen's top tips, insider advice, and additional resources that will give you a competitive edge. You can grab the Backstage Pass by going to
1: podcastbackstagepass.com. I remember the first time you came into one-on-one, and the first thing that popped in my head was gravitas.
2: <laughs>
1: and you you know, you, you command the room, and then... For me, I just, the gravity just brought me right to you. That's what you do, you command, and that's what you do when when you teach,
2: I can tell. Oh God, well, you know how much I love teaching. I do so much. In fact, it's just growing as the years go on. And it isn't just, well, I believe so strongly in passing on, you know, but now the situation in our country and everything, I believe in passing on the responsibilities and the ethics of it as well. You know, when people become really good and effective in this craft, in this art, I should say, it does carry responsibility. I'd like to be sure that that people understand that when, as part of their goals, yeah? So, I mean,
1: Kathleen Turner, we don't have to, I'm not gonna do this too long, but for instance, Broadway, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, in film, Body Heat, War the Roses. Oh, you forgot your discretion. So so many, uh, Accidental Tours, Actually, I saw Pritzy's Honor the other other night with Jack Nicholson. And here's one film I wanted to talk to you about, Crimes of Passion. Yeah. Would you say this is fair to say it? I'm not not blowing smoke up your dress, but I wasn't that crazy about the film, but I thought your performance was incredible.
2: Oh, I don't think you're crazy at all. No, I wanted (laughs) so much to work with Ken Russell. He was a genius. He was a genius who shot himself in the foot, couldn't seem to help it, but he wanted to remain on the world stage as a Hollywood director. And yet, at the same time, he felt he was selling out or compromising, you know, his his integrity or something. He was never that, that explicit, but truth was, Mark, you should have heard the screams when I said I would do that film, because, I mean, like Michael Douglas called me up and said, no, 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 you're American sweetheart now. You can't do... A fifty dollar Hollywood whore. I was like, yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I mean the conflict and the gorgeousness of it was to me Russell. I wanted to work with him. And this woman had been so destroyed, so put down by her ex-husband, by men in so many ways, even though she was an accomplished and accredited designer. Nevertheless, she was, she had this drive to prove herself desirable as a woman. Now, I kind of thought I knew what I was getting into with Russell, because I called up Bill Hurt, who did altered states. And I asked Bill about Ken and what he was like. And he said, Well, now, you know, Kent starts on the scotch around 6 a.m. So you really want to be sure to get you know, the shots that are really important into you in before. And I said, uh-huh. I, and then Bill said, well, no, I heard he uh, he was on wine now. Sounds better. Sure enough. Ken was, now, I did not anticipate Anthony Perkins. And that was hard. That was really, really hard because Anthony was and always had been, I suppose. And and I'm not letting anything slip here. This is not exactly gossip. Anthony was doing whatever drugs came his way. Now, I have never been attracted to that. Um, So I didn't understand a lot of what was going on. You know, I try and get to, to Ken's trailer by... 7 a.m. figuring I was gonna have a pretty coherent partner. But by nine, Anthony would be flying. And uh, so the outcome was that Ken never really finished the script in terms of writing. And we came to a point where clearly we pretty much shot everything that was on paper. And Ken said, well, how do you think it ends? <laughs> I say, I was like, what? And for whatever devil in me, I said, let's change characters. I'll play Anthony's character. He'll play mine. We'll change clothes and see where that goes. That was insane. I was probably absolutely nuts. I don't know. In any case, <laughs> when, I, when I got hold of Anthony's costume, I found all these little bottles in his pockets. And I was like, okay, this is this is not good. Anyway, and we went on to almost improvise entirely at the end of the film, and Ken loved it. Now, Ken, being the fact that he, he felt this need to shoot himself in the foot, inserted that whole thing with his daughter and oh it didn't make any sense you know didn't come out but still i felt that that is probably some of the best work i've ever done that he challenged me and at the same time i had i suppose the freedom or the lack of structure to imagine what i was doing and uh, no, I still do. I still think it's all of the best work I've done. I don't think it's a great film. I quite agree with you. You just threw me a curveball, Kathleen, because
1: in one of your podcasts, you said you went all over the world in your first part of your life as far as living here, living there. However, you did not like improv. You you you
2: no, you, I don't.
1: You weren't a oh, I
2: In this case, Ken Russell forced you to. Do improv. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't exactly improv because it, it, the way I understand improv, you you have set boundaries and you and I, I mean we really didn't know I think where we were going. I'm much easier with it now. I'm much more comfortable with it now because I always thought of improv as unkind. And uh I'm not unkind. So I can kind of perhaps control that better, No, I mean in in a situation, because when you were younger, you know you had no control over all the places
1: you've lived. I just want to like just ramble some of them, but, like for instance, born in Springfield, Missouri, then you went to Canada, then Cuba, then Venezuela, then you went to high school in London.
2: You're out of control as far as like where you're going to live. Well, no, I had a very good family, a very strong family. Older sister, older brother, younger brother. And then my father and my mother. Well, my father was very old-fashioned in many ways, very structured, you know, in terms of the family. And then, of course, there was the allegiance to the foreign service and to why we were overseas and everything. I will never, never forget. I think I was about 11 when my father said to me one day, he said, you you realize that all your actions reflect on your country. <laughs> oh fuck. I'm mean, kidding. I say that. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you can't. Thought, I'm sorry, you can bleep. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, I thought, oh, God help me now. No pressure. Um, <laughs> but I and in many ways, I suppose I've never lost that sense of responsibility that he made me forced upon me. Not necessarily just to our country, although I do feel that, but to the work, to the people I work, I am around. Makes sense?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It, it, it does, but Kathleen, you were,
1: so your grandfather, he was like a Methodist, uh, was he like a... Uh, no, that was my Greek
2: grandfather. Oh, and and I think so. Never met him, never knew him. You know, he was in China when my father grew up. And uh, uh, no, no, never had any, any. Um... So you were raised religiously Christian? No. Okay. No, we okay. went to, we went to English speaking churches that were Protestant. That mm-hmm. was the criteria.
1: And how was your experience going to high school in London for
2: acting? Hmm. I loved it. I was very lucky in that, at the time, the American School in London, which is, which is so well known and respected, was in a state of transition, and they were trying to decide how they were going to reform out their whole curriculum. So suddenly, for one year, only one year, because it didn't work out, we were allowed to design our own courses if we could get 10 students together who wanted Chaucer or wanted Shakespeare or wanted, I think in a high school of about 400-some, we had 50 English courses. It was gorgeous. (laughs) You know, I mean, you could just feast on whatever you could convince the other students to, to jump in on. And the teachers who were capable of doing this, adapt, adapting to it. As I say, it only lasted one year. Then we went back to a more structured curriculum. But my gosh, you could drink, oh, it was great, it was great.
1: So who would you give most of the credit for your training to, with London or like University of Missouri for the two years you were there?
2: I give training, my credit to train, of training, to doing it. Now, granted, when I went to the University of Southwest Missouri State, which is now just the University of Missouri, huh, I was an oddity. Mm. I was extremely well-educated. I had a slight British accent. I was not you know, like a run-of-the-mill kid. So, uh, and and I'm not, actually. I, I, I have a couple of awfully dear friends from that time who tell me that I was pretty awful at times, but still a very good actress. Anyway, so <laughs> I, I I did get a wonderful selection of roles, mostly Shakespeare and others, because, because I understood them, because I did them. And I think I, I wrote that one year. Now, imagine I was entirely isolated, the rest of the world as I had never been in my life. And although I had a, a mother and a younger brother in town, I did not live with them. And, and I was not, in the usual sense, popular at all, I think. In any case, so that was not a problem for me. I was... All I wanted was a the theater, and so one year, I think I counted 14 nights out of the full classic year when I was not in rehearsal or in performance, which caused a problem when I had to take a science course, astronomy, and there were labs at night, and I could not, of course, go to the labs at night. I was on stage, I'd say, mm-hmm. and so I met and made a deal with the uh, teacher at the time i was doing touch of the poet as i recall i said if you come to the performance and you think it's worthwhile and i pass all the tests will you let me out of the lambs and he gave me a b Mm. wow yeah um, uh, yeah I, i really squeaked through that one resourceful
0: Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where One on One Next Level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononenextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. Kathleen, I know in in the classes you teach for one-on-one, you always emphasize text and, you know, Shakespeare's always incorporated in that. Do you think your appreciation for that really is the time you spent in London? And, you know, is that why you like, you know, here in America, you really try to emphasize kind of the importance of that and not, I know when you tell our actors, like you cannot
2: bring in a monologue from television, theater only. Well, yeah, no, no. Just because so much of film and television text is dependent on the shots, on the pictures that are being, you know, given by the by the camera. And so the substance is not in the text. But, you no, know, what I learned through this last two years working with you guys on Zoom was that that was an extraordinary opportunity to emphasize text Because I like to see the whole actor. I like to, I like to say, what the hell are you doing with your foot, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't have that ability. Now, all my students did have to stand, mind you, because that's a different energy altogether. But I mean, at least I could have that much energy. But it became clear after the first month or two that we tried this, it was a good opportunity. To say, okay, now you can't, you can't show me with your body, but you can show me with your voice. You can show me with your intention. You can show me with your emphasis. What is the word we have to hear? What is the intonation that will lead to the next thought? I actually found Zoom extremely good in that way. How about that, Mark? No, you. <laughs> <laughs> And a
1: lot of your characters, you talk about how, and you, I've seen it, like, uh, you know, they, they appear one, you know, they they appear one way and you play them another. Have you always been drawn to characters like that?
2: Mm. It's the possibilities. It's, it's the, you know, the what ifs, which is you've got to explore when you're creating a character or or the whole concept of, now we you you have to stay within the guidelines obviously of of the director and the playwright and everyone I mean, they have a significant intention that is part of your responsibility as an actor, but within that, all right, so they want it they want this message this emotion this intention to be understood, great. Doesn't mean you can only do it one way. Ah, Always, always ask yourself, what if? What if I did it like this? What if she meant that? What if, what if? (laughs) Which is very much what I say to my
1: students. Because Kathleen, you know, if you ask most students to play the action of anger, they're going to yell at the top of their their lungs. (laughs) When you see a guy like Jack Nicholson, you know, you know, whisper or, you know, play the action of anger, it's so much more interesting, just like you do in your characters, to do what people aren't expecting.
2: Well, you don't do it just because people aren't expecting it. You you do it because you find that that is the most... mm, most powerful way to do it. Yeah, the idea that being angry means you have to shout or something is pretty childish. Yeah, it's an easy, easy. I, I have no interest or admiration for the easy emotions in that it is the big emotions, fear, anger, you know, Terror, um, all these things, what, what I would kind of call the gut emotions, because that's where you respond first, are too easy, much too easy, and not very interesting. So to me, that would be the first thing I would reject.
1: <laughs> so here's the first. I never heard this before. You said this. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think you called it a love story, but you said it was about love. Oh, yes. And a comedy.
2: Now you're like that. (laughs) (laughs) Can you elaborate for us? Yeah. When I finally got to meet with Edward Albee, because I had been trying to meet with him, and, and his producer, Liz McCann, God bless, said, you know, He's not ready. He's let one woman, a generation in New York do this. And he's been turning everybody down and everything. I said, yeah, yeah. Just want to talk to him. Just, in any case, so she set up a lunch. And we uh, did not talk about the play. We talked um, about politics. And we were very aligned in that. But at the end of the lunch, he said, what do you want? And about that, Ralph, <laughs> I said, I want to read Bond for you. I just want to, i want you to listen. I want to read her. He said, all right. I said, what do you have that you don't? You, you think you bring. I said, it's funny, Edward. You have never had the laughs that you will have. Which is why I went to Bill Irwin and said, you got to do George, so, you know, because Bill, Bill's mind is is brilliant. And as a comic, he's a fucking comic genius. Again, I'm sorry, beat me. Anyway, beat me. Uh, no. Anyway, it, it was. There were huge laughs right up until five lines from the end. You know, when Martha says to, to George, where's the telegram? And he says, I ate it. And it's a belly laugh. And she's on the floor dissolved, a complete mess. and But it's Bill Irwin, and he does it perfectly. And, and I had a John Lithgow came to me and said that he had been in a production in Los Angeles of Virginia Woolf with the Edward directed with who's the woman I'm thinking of? Terribly austere. Very. She was an MP for a while, and she was on Broadway recently and Three Women. Walk with me, talk with me. Anyway, she's a very, very tough cookie. Okay. And and he told me that in the production in Los Angeles, there had not been a single laugh. I said, how the hell did you get through? And he went, not well. <laughs> no, no. No, people who had said, you know, who had seen the film, which I never did because. Linda Jackson, by the way. That's, the, That's had it, to Linda Jackson. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, tough, tough broad boy. Wow, anyway. So they were going to the theater to see these two drunks screaming at each other. But you see, that's not what it is at all. Never was. And I don't think that even, and he said, Albie said to me that, at, and, and as every good actor knows, at some point, an actor knows much more about the character than anyone, than the playwright, than the director, than anyone. And I always said he did not know. He just did not know. And he left me a note on my dressing room table the night we closed on Broadway saying, you are the reason I am a playwright. Wow. Which is pretty amazing. That is what a amazing. yeah. And the two of you also became very good friends, right? I know. I know. I know. You know, he was such a tough cookie and he didn't like many people, but he did seem to care for me. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. So, Kathleen, you have this great career going.
1: And then all of a sudden, I, 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 and I hope I'm not. Uh, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, rheumatoid arthritis happens or what what How? because my friend she actually wanted me to tell you she doesn't want to mention her name but she actually heard you on a recent podcast she has rheumatoid arthritis and she says mark tell kathleen how much it meant to me because nobody cares nobody wants to hear about it but yet it's so painful it paralyzes your body you can't move muscles
2: yeah it's it's not um life-threatening it's not gonna kill me but it, it will kill my life you yeah, know, I could tell so my life, you fight, you fight uh all the time. The kind of a sad part of it, and I'm not did it come out of nowhere? but it like, was one day you just you just felt it uh but once the damage has really been done to the body, and this happened enough years ago that it was before the biologics were invented, the new medications. Against autoimmune and people really didn't understand what the hell autoimmune diseases were. So it was it was a while before we were able to get it under manageable. You know, in between what ten operations to replace these, hell, oh, hell, bell. I never really stopped working. <laughs> I remember when I took indiscretions. I thought. Oh, I can do this role. She's a diabetic. She's in bed. The first and the third act are right in her bedroom. Well, yeah, right. No, the bed turned into a trampoline. Yeah, I, I am not capable of, of lying there and well, even Camille. It was only when I died that I was able to stop. You know. Anyway, that's a aside.
1: So, can can I ask you, did this just all of a sudden come on out of nowhere?
2: No, no. Okay. Very often happens to women in their late 30s after they've had a child. It's a hormonal trigger, they believe, also stress. And at the time, I was under a great deal of stress. Combination of factors. And it's not, my mother didn't have it, but my grandmother. My grandmother did, and so it's in the it's in the genes, as it were. But it's not absolutely necessary. I mean, my, I've had my daughter tested, and she's she's okay. You know, she even though she has my gene, is only half. I seem to have had it from both sides of the family. So even so, doesn't necessarily mean it it, it manifests. All right, given the fact that it does and did then now i turned 68 a couple weeks ago happy birthday happy birthday <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> <Unbelievable>. birthday. Wow. <laughs> and i know that the damage that has been done is not something that can be changed Undone. you can't regrow cartilage you can't regrow bone yeah all of this so so i will face and consider, you know, how my options change as I go on. And I have been, but I have been interviewing with different universities about working more full time with them. And I've accepted an offer at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, for the fall. I'm gonna work one week a month with their graduate active students throughout the fall. And see how I like this more academic <laughs> sort of life. No, I still have my own dates for performing. This will not change. And I've got three films in the can right now, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, wow. but I'm uh, I, you know, you have to take into account and face the fact That I will not get better. I can manage to a certain extent how much I get, how much I have to pay for this disease, but. uh, But you keep on. Nothing stopped you, Kathleen. As a matter of fact,
1: Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to share with you, Kathleen, a a song that just made me stop in my tracks and think of you. And even the beginning of the the chords. Maybe I'll play my show, go on. Even the first chords that you'll listen to, if you don't mind, I just want to play it for you for like a minute. Because it really made me think of you and your career and everything about you. You tell me what you think after you listen to it. You've heard it before. But it really did make make me think of you. So I had them cue it up and they're going to play it for you. Here
0: we go. Here we go. Let me. Hopefully, you can hear this. I'm pointing it to the
2: mic. That's life. That's, life.
1: That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April,
2: baby. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. Well. All right, now I don't yeah, think right. that lays it fair. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, you know, you know you know you've been so resilient. No matter what happens, you know you keep on going your your way. And you know this teaching gig that this is you've been talking about teaching for years.
2: Well, I've been talking for years. i will just i tell you as I get older, and I don't think that's simply a factor of age or 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 my disease. It's I'm thrilled by the by young people, by their energy, by their exploration, by their passion. And the fact that, man, when one of them breaks through, you know, so he says, oh, hell, I get it. You go, yes! Um, it's so thrilling. And, and I, yeah. it's hard to think. That so many people will not will not. Talent is a fact, a factor. I've I've played with the idea that there's a communication gene. Mm-hmm. That you actually, you know, when they say things like, Oh, I could hear so and so read the, the phone book. Well, no, you're not interested in the phone book, but you're saying this person pulls me in some way. i am tell you, I'm, I'm not so sure I'm off base. I've, there is, I, I have come to the conclusion, I have now been doing this for 45 years, that it is an art, and like any art, there has to be some, some factor That is unique to the individual and in more, more than simply a matter of training or, Mm -hmm. yeah. I just think the most exciting thing to me is to help people to find how they act. Not some method, not some school, not some damn forgive me Meisner shit, (laughs) okay? Attack me now. Yeah. yeah. No, no. It's the doing. Mm-hmm. It's the doing and finding out how you do it.
0: Also like a successful career, like the one you've had also takes a lot of, you know, perseverance. And that's one of the things for that. A woman, let me interrupt
2: here. Yeah. For a woman crossing all the age barriers that I've crossed, I'm almost 70 for God's sake. Right. In this country, I mean, in England, I would be respected as hell. Mm. That's not true of this country.
0: Mm. You don't know that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you've you've broken through that, and it obviously hasn't been you know easy. And you know, one of our goals for this podcast is to really kind of give our you know listeners a behind the scenes look at you know a story of perseverance, and maybe you can shed some light on like how you've done it, like how, how you've broken through that age ceiling or the, you know, the, the the disparity between, you know, how they treat
2: male actors and female actors? Oh, forget that. I say to my young, when I have college age students who ask me, should they go into graduate school or something or conservatory? To the women, no. Hmm. No, you need to get out there right now. To the men, you got another five, 10 years. Take your time. No, that isn't only because men much so much slower than women.
0: Hey folks, Brian here. Mark and I often cringe when people call One on One Next Level a workshop studio because we are so much more than that. You and I both know that not all workshop studios are the same, and I can tell you with complete confidence that no other studio offers the same level of care or programming that we do, and we do so with pride. Here's just a few examples. I'm Emily, and before One on One Next Level, I was in a super dark place in my career. I tried a lot of things to find representation, but nothing seemed to work, and I felt invisible. Then, almost as a Hail Mary, I signed up for a manager session. It was incredible, but it was also the thing to land me a manager. Since then, i booked a national commercial, I've gone on to create a thriving voiceover career, and signed with an agent all through these classes and programs. One on One Next Level has been the single most important thing that's influenced my acting career and life in so many ways. I'm Neil. In the last year, I booked two co-stars and one top of show guest star on major TV series. I also shot my first lead in a feature film. In fact, I've hit 20 big milestones thanks to the connections that I've made in classes at One on One Next Level. The key has been getting in front of casting directors. And that's why I love One on One Next Level. If you're not a member yet, What are you waiting for? Every actor deserves face time with the people in the business who can move your career forward. And One on One Next Level can help you do that. Did you know One on One Next Level produces over 335 events and classes each month? Whether you join us in person or attend on Zoom, you can meet with A-list casting directors, filmmakers, TV showrunners, and executive producers, as well as agents and managers when you become a member. These days, it's harder and harder to get real face time with industry pros, but one-on-one next level makes it possible. To become a member, visit com and click join. We can't wait to hear your success story.
1: I was going to ask, Kathleen, is there anything you're watching now or you've been watching on streaming that you really
2: find exciting? Uh, you know, I read more than anything, which is another point I, I wouldn't mind making that that I believe that reading is the biggest boon to the imagination and to an exposure to... uh, An actor needs to know as much as they possibly can. And, And a lot of that is in literature. What have I been watching lately? Well, I have a daughter who's in her 30s and introduces me to a lot of stuff. Let's see. Lute. We were just watching loot, which is fun. Maya is amazing; is just a terrific comedic actress. I watched Jean Smart recently in uh, in her show, the one in Las Vegas, where she's a stand up comedian. That... God, what guts she has! I I adore that. I watch a lot of British drama, but. Oh, here I go again. But they're always the same actors mm-hmm. over and over and over again. One of my greatest friends is Maggie Smith. And, you know, I, when we're talking or something, and I say, so, so is always being, you know, brought to the States and everything. And she says, yeah, we're done. Just, it's just they're doing, it's just Judy again. Now she and Judy are great friends, so I'm not maligning either of them. All right, although I will have to. See. Oh, I don't know. There are many good jokes about <laughs> Maggie. Is very funny, but um... so I was going to ask
1: you one thing: Is that a coincidence, or did, how did that happen with you, Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito? That that triumvirate. Did you guys happen to meet each
2: other somewhere? No, no, not really. No. Michael and Danny have been friends since college. Uh, I mean they shared an apartment when they first went to New York. Really? And yo, oh yeah, that's how long, that's how tight they've been for forever and ever. And it's and it's great. It's great. The friendship, that great friendship is is gosh, I can't imagine their lives without it. Any case, no, no, I came into it with Michael auditioned me for romancing, and I did well, and we hit it off. Now, by then, I had body heat and the man with two brains, in my experience. And, of course, the huge doubt then was, was, can I be funny? No, no, I proved I was funny, a man with two brains, so then it was could I be demure and insecure and everything as the character is at the beginning of the film and um, so I was able to stumble in in ill-fitting clothing and no makeup and all that crap and and I I guess Bob Zemeckis thought I could get away with it Mm. anyway but I'm a I'm a tomboy. I've always been a tomboy. And so I kind of fit in well that way. And then we ran off to Mexico to the wilds of Mexico. And I got seven stitches. And I got all these awards for the worst week. And I got actually stuck in a real mudslide. And oh, heavens the Betsy. So I fit in. That, and the fact, of course, at that time, I, I I still am bilingual in Spanish, but Michael had not really considered how much work he needed there. He had one AD who was bilingual. So I would joke that he owed me another salary, which he did and does. But anyway, <laughs> no, he needed me. But to me, I, I just... I loved it. I just, you know, throw me in the mud, man. I'm great. And you guys did perform the stunt yourselves. Oh, well, pretty much. They wouldn't let me swing across the gorge because of the insurance. And they brought me right. <laughs> but they had to keep stopping filming because I would go into the stunt and, and I'd be laughing. And they said, no, 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 man, you're terrified. Oh, God. Right, I'm terrified, but I wasn't. I was having a ball.
1: So then Danny goes on to direct both you and Michael in War of the Roses. Yeah,
2: he was good. He was good. He knew just what he wanted, which is wonderful uh, in a director. I mean, not not the kind of what you want that says you do it this way, but the idea that he had the whole thing mapped out, and and we got to it a bit of a crisis because. Fox, who was the producing studio, wanted to change hand hands. Wanted the two of them to, to be carried off in ambulances and then live. Michael, Danny, and I were, no. I mean, that's that's the script. The script is great. I mean, why, why do I screw around with it? Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner can't die. Yes, we can. <laughs> anyway, having the three of us together with the power that we had at that time was we were able to stop that nonsense and continue to finish the film as it was intended. But, well, boy, did they fight.
0: You know, your recent, I feel like the Kominsky Method has really has really been a hit. How is just, you know, how, like the reception to it has been great. But like, how's your experience been?
2: Oh, wonderful! It was lovely to be back with Michael again. Uh huh. No, we just because you guys have a dynamic that like it just we're you know, old like, yeah. We're all shoes, man. We just kind of go, oh yeah, hi it's you. It's it's lovely. We we care for each other. We always have, and and it's yeah. oh, it was a real pleasure. And and, and I that Chuck Lury. You know, I don't, I haven't done TV series. I have rightly refused to do them because I didn't like the fact that the characters were the same year after year after year. I would never, anyway, Chuck Lorre swore to me that he would write every word, not a committee, a writer is not a bunch of, that he would turn it over that he would write every word and he would be there. And he was absolutely true to his word. And I think that made the writing extraordinary and consistent, the quality I was very pleased with. Mm -hmm. You can feel it.
1: (laughs) We want to thank you so much, Kathleen. You really are born not just to act, but to direct and teach. You love teaching. It's such a privilege just hearing
2: you talk about what you've shared with us today. Well, I'm happy to share with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed working with you guys.
0: I feel like oh, I'm a student in one of your classes because I know our, our actors always walk away from your classes, not you know not only having learned, but inspired just by, sometimes they say they just listen to you talk and they're just drawn yeah. in and they like- I've gotten lovely
2: emails from them. Yeah. I really have. It's been very sweet to, to hear back saying, you know, two years ago, I worked with you, and I've got this role now, and and uh, I'm going to be brave. <laughs> and you go, yes, please.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the Backstage Pass. Don't treat this podcast as mere background entertainment. The Backstage Pass offers exclusive resources and behind the scenes footage that empower you to make a real impact on your career.